Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them to the book of Acts and chapter number 9. If you don't have a a, a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn in it to page 99, and you would be at Acts chapter 9. You know, biblical Christianity is a religion, if I could put it this way, of conversion. It is a religion of life change. And the good news is that you don't have to stay the way that you are. The good news is that deeply ingrained patterns of sin can be broken. The good news is that anyone can be radically changed by God. The good news is that who you are does not limit what you can be. The good news is that life can move in a new direction. The good news is that when a person is introduced to Jesus Christ, their life is never the same. Biblical Christianity is a religion of conversion and life change. And that is illustrated by an amazing U-turn that occurs in the book of Acts when Saul becomes Paul. We start off with Saul, who is a raging zealot. He is a literally a first century religious terrorist under legal cover. He is a death squad leader seeking to eradicate the fledgling church. He's an individual who's on a collision course with eternal judgment. And then there's this marvelous conversion that happens in his life. And we could rightly say he goes from being all of that to being the second most important person in Western civilization. One writer put it this way. He said, apart from Jesus, Paul is arguably the most important person in Western civilization. It is because of Saul, Paul, that Christianity expanded from the Middle East into Europe, where it ultimately influenced Western history and values and law and art and literature and music. And it is because of Paul that today, through 2,000 years of cross-cultural missions and cultural exchange, Christianity extends south into Africa, north and east into Russia and Asia, and in every direction to the island nations, large and small. Men and women, if Saul can be converted, you can be converted. Anyone can be converted. And if you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 9, I would like to now read the first 19 verses of chapter 9, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Verse 1 says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told what you must do. The man who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now, our plan as we move into an examination of this amazing U-turn today is to really do four things. Number one, we're going to look at Saul's conversion in verses 1 to 9, and then we're going to take a little time to look at his calling, Saul's calling in verses 10 to 19, and then Saul's first conflicts in verses 20 to 30. We're just going to look at those real quickly, and then we're going to draw it all together and look at some key lessons that God has for us today from this section of his word. So let's begin by backtracking to look a little more deeply at Saul's conversion in the first nine verses. George Littleton, who was once himself a skeptic of Christianity, said this. He said, the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, is of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. I mean, it really is an amazing story when you stop and think about it that the number one enemy of the early church becomes the number one leader of the early church. And this is a very, very pivotal story. In fact, the story of Paul's conversion is so important, it actually appears four times in the New Testament, three times in the book of Acts. We see it here in chapter 9 of Acts, we see it in chapter 22 of Acts, we see it in chapter 26 of Acts, and also Paul relates some of the story of his conversion in Galatians chapter 1. So obviously, God wants us to learn something from this. It's repeated so often and focused on frequently. So if you go back to chapter 9 and look at those first few words, it says, now Saul still 
which drives us back to chapter 8 and verse 3. Remember this, when Paul began to ravage the church and he was entering house after house and he was dragging off men and women and he would put them in prison. And now we come later on to chapter 9 after some time has passed and Saul is still, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The picture of the language here is he was like a riled animal. Think of a riled up animal coming after somebody. And that's the picture of Saul. And he goes to the high priest, and in verse 2, he asks for letters from the high priest so he can take these to the synagogues at Damascus. So if he found any belonging to the way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. Now, he calls these individuals as belonging to the way, which is one of the early terms given to the followers of Jesus, which probably comes from his statement in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so they initially called these followers the way. He is the way to salvation. Jesus of Nazareth is, they would say. And he was coming to Damascus. Now, Damascus is 150 miles from Jerusalem to the north. It would take you a week to travel that. And and we know that, that we've already seen this in the book of Acts. They began to scatter out from Jerusalem. But there was also a large contingent of Jewish individuals, a large Jewish population that resided in Damascus. It was estimated they had 30 to 40 synagogues. And obviously, some people went from Jerusalem up to Damascus because it had that Jewish flavor to it. And so he goes to the high priest, and he asks for letters from him. He asks for extradition papers, legal papers. And he said, if I find any of these followers of the way, whether they're men or whether they're women, I want to just bind them up, I want to chain them up, and I'm going to bring them back to Jerusalem. You know, it, it was one of those... Knock, knock, any Jesus followers here? Okay, all right, come on, here we go. We're locking you up, we're taking you back. Amazing perspective. You know, and you know, when I read through this, I, I think to myself, what, what motivates a guy to do this? You know, what gives him his drive to do this? And, and we know he was familiar with, highly trained with the whole Old Testament. And he, he really believed in his heart he was defending the Old Testament. And in Leviticus 24, 16, it says this, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord God is to be put to death. And here's the way I think he, he went through this. He said, you know that Jesus from Nazareth, that Galilean nobody that they're promoting, they're putting him forward as a pretender Messiah. You want to talk about blaspheming the name of the God of the Old Testament, you just promote somebody as a pretender Messiah. And so it seems to me that it's that kind of thing that gave him this motivation. And you know, humanly speaking, I don't know if we ever stop and really think about this, but humanly speaking, do you know that this person could have killed the church in its infancy? He had that kind of power. And that kind of influence. Well, in in verse 3, as he is beginning to approach Damascus, this light comes from from heaven. And and it says in chapter 26 of Acts, verse 13, that it was brighter than the sun. Now, it it was not the sun 
It was actually an appearance of the glorified Jesus himself. And we know that as we, pay, as we piece things together. Later on in this chapter, in verse 17, Ananias is going to say to him, the Lord Jesus appeared to you, Saul. Later on in, in verse 27 in the chapter, when Barnabas is trying to, to get Saul ingratiated with those in Jerusalem, he said, Saul has seen the Lord on the road to Damascus. In fact, when the account is given in Acts chapter 26 and verse 16, uh, the Lord Jesus actually says to Saul, for this person, this purpose, I appeared to you. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, when, when Paul's talking about how the Lord appeared to all these people, he goes on to say there, and the Lord appeared to me too. When did he do that? Right here, on the road to Damascus. And verse 4 tells us that he fell down to the ground when this happened. I can't imagine when heaven is open and the glory of God comes down on you what that would do to you. He falls on the ground, and in chapter 26, verse 13, it tells us that everybody in his party was with him, and they all fell down to the ground. And then this word came out of this vision of all this light. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, now you have to understand, get into his soul here. What's going on with him I mean, this was disorienting to him. I mean, if you had this incredible blinding light coming out of heaven, you would know that's probably divine. And, and you know, my aim has been to defend and to serve God. I, I, what, what's going on here? And so he says, who, who, who are you? And the reply comes in verse 5, I am Jesus. Now, if you, if you said nothing more than that, that could be a little bit confusing uh, we learn from Acts 22 that he actually said, I am Jesus the Nazarene. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I know who Jesus the Nazarene is. And if you go back to the end of chapter 7, uh, you remember that Stephen was there, and it says that Stephen gazed up into heaven, and out loud he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And you remember Saul's response to that. Oh, let's just go ahead and stone him right now. Let's just stone him. Let's put him under a pile of rocks. And now Saul is face to face with the same person. And you can see what's going through his mind. Jesus, the Nazarene, is alive. He's not a pretender. He really is Messiah. And in verse 6, Jesus says, get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. You want to talk about conversion? You want to talk about life change? I mean, the dedicated prosecutor and persecutor is about to become a committed preacher. The Hebrew of Hebrews is about to become the apostle to the Gentiles. This deeply legalistic Pharisee is about to become the devoted proclaimer of the grace of God. Look at verse 7. It says, The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. You know, in chapter 22, it says they heard some voice, but they couldn't understand what was being said at all. 
Well, Saul got up from the ground, verse 8, and though his eyes were open, he could see actually nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. You know, this is a guy who'd been spiritually blind for a long time. But he's actually blind right at this moment. And isn't it interesting, the one who burst into Damascus or was anticipating bursting into Damascus like a storm and, and taking the infidels is now quietly being led by his hand. You know, the charging bull is turned into a docile lamb. By the way, that's what an encounter with the living God can do. That's what conversion can do. And it says, verse 9, he was three days without sight, and he didn't even eat, and he didn't even drink. I mean, this is a shocker. This is a shock to the system. He's having to process this. Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. Oh, my. This was a stunner. I mean, he's, you know, I've been rebuked by the living God. All those people I thought were wrong, they were right, and I was wrong. That brings us then to Saul's calling uh, in verses 10 and following. There's a vision uh, given to Ananias. Um, and uh, by the way, this is a different Ananias than we saw in chapter 5 of Acts. Remember, that guy got dispatched to heaven early. Uh, this is a different Ananias here. And uh, he's given this vision, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into uh, Damascus. He's actually in the, in the Damascus area. He go to the street called Straight. Go to Straight Street, which, by the way, in Damascus, and I understand it's still there today, is the main thoroughfare through Damascus from the east to the west. And I want you to go to that street, and in particular, I want you to go to an individual's house, a guy by the name of Judas who lives on Straight Street. And you know, I want you to know that there's this guy from Tarsus named Saul, and he's also gotten a vision that a guy from Ananias is going to come and lay hands on him. And then, you know, you come to, I mean, think about Ananias. You come to verse 13, and he starts to protest. Whoa, what are you asking me to do here? I have heard from many. How many included many? I don't know. But a whole lot of people have told me about this guy. And not only that, to top it off, verse 14, he has authority from the chief priest to bind everyone who calls on your name. Are you kidding me? You want me to go... Look that dude up. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Now just freeze frame for a second. Ananias' perspective of Saul was he was a dangerous terrorist. And he was. God's perspective of Saul was that he was a chosen instrument. See, see this, is, this is what part of where we're limited because we tend to look at people from what they are and God tends to look at people from the perspective of what they can become. And we see that gap here. And, and he 
is going to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. By the way, that's just, that's, we're going to see that in the book of Acts. That's exactly what happens. Now, this is a great calling that God has given to him, but it's still going to be, as it is for all of us, even though we have a great calling, a difficult road ahead. Verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It's not going to be easy. And so everything happens. He goes and he enters the house, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared. He sent me so you can regain your sight, verse 17, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from their eyes something like scales. I don't know what that was. And he regained his sight. He got up. He was baptized. He finally took some food. And he was strengthened. And then the next thing that happens is we have Saul's first conflicts. I call it that because there's going to be more coming in in verses 20 to 30. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to give us a feel for it. Um, Verse 20, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues there in Damascus, saying he is the Son of God. And everyone hearing him was amazed. And they were saying, is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But notice what happens, verse 23, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with Saul, and their plot became known to him, verse 24. But they were watching the gates of the city. They knew he was in the city day and night because they were going to take him out when he came through the gate. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. You see, no one's more hated than a traitor. That's what he has become in their minds. And so they let him down in the opening of a wall. We know from 2 Corinthians 11, verse 33, that it was a window that was built into the wall of the city. And they lowered him out of that window. And he escaped their plan. In verse 26, eventually he comes to, there's some time that goes by and he comes to Jerusalem and he's trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. I mean, think about that. You're in Jerusalem and probably a number of the followers of Jesus had had family members imprisoned and killed by Saul. And now he's saying, brothers and sisters, I'm here. And you know, they had been betrayed, the 12 once by Judas, and I don't think they were really interested in being betrayed again. So in verse 27, this guy named Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. This is this Joseph. We saw him in Acts chapter 4. and His name is his Barnabas. We call him that, but that's just his nickname, his given name. His birth name was Joseph. He was given the nickname Barnabas by the, the disciples And that literally means the son of encouragement. This is a great guy to study in the New Testament because he was always committed to bringing the best out of other people. And so he does that. And so we learn in in verses 28 to 30 that that he begins to be accepted and he's moving about boldly speaking in the name of the Lord. And he's uh, talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews that were there and, and they try to put him to death. And that's just the beginning of things with Saul who became Paul. Now, we blasted through all of that, and what I want to do is I want to just pull now some, some very important key lessons from this section of God's Word. Very important. 
Here's the first one. God can reach and change anyone. God can reach and change anyone. Anyone. I mean, we we have Saul as our supreme illustration here. Saul hated Jesus, but God can reach and change anybody. Saul tortured and killed Christians, but God can reach and change anyone. Saul was dedicated to destroying the church that Jesus said, I will build my church, but God can reach and change anyone. Anyone. The reality is, when we begin to piece it together, is that the hound of heaven had been on Saul's trail, really for all of his life. He had been running from God for his whole life. In fact, in Galatians 1.15, he says later upon reflection, God called me from my mother's womb. He knew the hound of heaven, as he looked back on it, had been on his case from the beginning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, I am the chief, I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm, I'm the worst one of all. And yet, life change came to me. God can reach and change anyone. We could go on, we could talk about somebody, for example, like John Newton. John Newton, whose life was marked by great debauchery and vulgarity. John Newton was a deserter from the Royal Navy. John Newton in 1746 found himself on a slave ship on the west coast of Africa. Why were they there? They wanted to snatch people and sell them as slaves in the west. But God can reach and change anyone. And the conversion came in John Newton's life when he met Jesus Christ face to face. And most of us are aware that he wrote what is conceivably in the West the greatest song ever written. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God can reach and change anyone. You might take a look at the life of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson, some of you who are younger may not really be aware of him, but at the age of 39, he was the special counsel to President Nixon. Chuck Colson was the master of political dirty tricks. No one in American history has ever been better at it than him. In fact, he was given certain nicknames. He was given the nickname Hatchet Man. He was given the nickname Evil Genius. Can you imagine having that as your nickname? That was Chuck Colson. He once said this, I would walk over my own grandmother to get the president reelected. He was described by the media, Chuck Colson was, as this, incapable, I'm quoting, incapable of humanitarian thought. But God can reach and change anyone. And after being thrown into prison and coming to trust in Jesus Christ as his Savior, he was thrown in because of obstruction from justice charges. He was converted. If you know the story, 
of the life change that came to him because he saw the scene in prison. He said, you know what? We need to minister to people in prison. He started what's called prison fellowship, still functions today. He started what was called angel tree, still goes on today, where one half million of the children of inmates in prison are given Christmas presents from their parents because of the life change that came to Chuck Colson's life. God can reach and change anyone. Take, take, for example, Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel's an interesting individual. He's a graduate of Yale Law School. He was the legal affairs editor for the Chicago Tribune. Lee Strobel was an atheist, a committed skeptic of religious things. He said this, God is nothing more than the product of wishful thinking. Bunch of idiots. He describes his life as totally self-serving and that he had an immoral lifestyle. That's just his own assessment. But God can reach and change anyone. And so what happens is his wife encounters the person of Christ. And there's life changers, conversion in her life. And he begins to see that. And he says, wait a minute, something real is happening here. And then he sought out in this quest to disprove Christianity. I don't know how many guys have done that over the centuries. And he ended up writing a book called The Case for Christ, which is really, it just tells the whole story of how he tried to disprove Christianity, and the exact opposite happened. In fact, he's gone on to write 20 books as one of the leading apologists for Jesus Christ and Christianity in our time. You see, God can reach and change anyone. For example, Tammy. Tammy was raised a Jehovah's Witness and was a dedicated disciple of the Watchtower. Her father was a leading elder. She was extremely passionate in her drive as a Jehovah's Witness. She wanted to be one of the only 144,000, according to their theology, who would ever get even to heaven. She could argue Jehovah's Witness doctrine better than any elder by their admission, not hers. She was, Tammy, a Jehovah's Witness among Jehovah's Witnesses. And she was feverishly involved in seeking to convert others. But God can reach and change anyone. And I can still remember sitting in my office over here with Tammy. She'd come to my office to out-joust me over Bible verses and the person of Christ. And we, we talked for a while, and basically I just refused to wrangle with her. because That's really what she wanted to do, and she was very good at winning wrangling. And I basically just said, you know, time out. Here, let me just summarize this. There's only two approaches to salvation in all of the universe. One spells salvation, D-O. One spells salvation, D-O-N-E. And the Jehovah's Witness... They spell salvation D-O. You have to do certain things. To, 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 even when you get to heaven, you're not even guaranteed you're going to be able to stay there. And I said, this is the difference in what I believe in. Now, that was just the start of a process because the hound of heaven was after her. And God used some other individuals and some other perspective over time, but she was converted in a magnificent way. In fact, you can still read her testimony today uh, on the internet, and, and I have a, the website up there. I'll just give it to you. It's for the number four Jehovah.org slash Tammy dash EX dash 
Jehovah's-Witness. And you can read her story right there. See, God can reach and change anyone. Genesis 18, 14 asks this question. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Answer, no. And he is still in the life-changing businessmen and women. He still rescues. He still converts. You know, it was actually Saul, Paul himself, who wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And he can change your life. And he can change the life of someone you may know. So the first observation is that God can reach and change anyone. Second one, God always leads with grace. I love this one. God always leads with grace. He just operates differently than we do. And you see this all the way through the Bible. You know, you go back to Abram in the book of Genesis. He was an aged man with a barren wife. But through God's grace, he became the father of a chosen nation. You look at Jacob, and he was a deceiver and a manipulator supreme. And because of God's grace, he became an heir of the promises of God. You look at David, who was just the the little baby guy in a big family. He was an obscure shepherd boy. But because of the grace of God, he became the greatest king in Israel's history. And you look at Saul. He was a religious terrorist, like we see today. And by God's grace, he became the second most important person in Western civilization. God always leads with grace. It's amazing. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he put it this way. He said, we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about the grace of God that comes to us is in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us can't take credit for his grace. I can't take credit for his grace. He is the one who's really at work. He is the one who does the impossible. It's all done this way because he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. I mean, who deserves the grace that God brings to us? None of us. Third key lesson is this. Don't write off anyone as unreachable. No one is beyond God's reach, no matter what they have done. Do you think there were anyone out there who thought that Saul was unreachable? That's probably scores of them. Think there's anyone out there at the time who thought that John Newton, this ugly, gross person, Involved in slave trade was unreachable? Sure, there were probably a lot of people. How about Chuck Colson? Anyone think he was unreachable? Yeah, there were a lot of people who thought, even when he was reached, some people thought he really hadn't been reached because no one can change that much. Think anyone thought that Lee Strobel, the incredible skeptic, this huge intellect, who said Christianity is just sort of a, a fog that's out there, it's a mirage. You think he would, people thought he was unchangeable? Yeah. Think anyone thought that Tammy was unchangeable? I mean, this committed Jehovah's Witness who could out-argue almost anybody else? Yeah. But the hound of heaven is still active. 
1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God desires all men, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, that's a key phrase at the end there. Because that's what people must do, come to repentance. Repentance is when you change your mind about who Christ is, when you change your mind about what Christ has done. See, here's what we do. We look at people as they are. God looks at people from the perspective of what they can become. Don't write off anyone as unreachable. By the way, one of the best weapons that we have is the weapon of prayer. I I can't wait to get to heaven and find out some of the prayers that might have been offered for all of these individuals we've talked about today. I guarantee you there will have been prayers that were delivered. Paul learned this lesson well because in Romans chapter 1 and verse 10, he said, my concern is for Israel. And here's what he said, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. They were rejecting Christ, but he says, my prayer to God for them is their salvation. No weapon is more powerful. And that's what we need to do. We need to pray for people like this. We need to pray that God would rock their world. We we need to pray that they might heed God's call to come to repentance. There's no force more powerful than that. By the way, it's Mother's Day, and I will tell you this, that there's nothing more powerful, in my opinion, than the prayers of godly women and godly mothers and godly grandmothers. And some of you may be looking at some children or grandchildren or or others, and you think, I don't know if they're reachable. Oh, they are. We need to pray that God would rock their world, and they would heed his call to come to repentance. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you so much again for this book that, to me, it's just sizzling when I touch it. And Father, we know that you can reach and change anyone, and if there's anyone hearing my voice who who doesn't believe that, I pray you would open their eyes that that can happen, that if they would just come by faith, they can be converted. John 6, verse 37, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I won't push them away. John 5, it says, he who heeds my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. Father, we pray for anyone that hasn't yet experienced a relationship with Jesus Christ to realize how much he loves them. And it's possible for them to be converted and changed because that's what God does. He's in the life change business. And all of us who've been changed would say amen to that. Thank you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.